Former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first of a kind podcast, we sit down with active duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Information we use to make decisions. Intelligence is news you can use. Feed them misinformation through sources. Disinformation that can literally change the direction of a war. Probably the most heightened terrorist time since 9-11. And an FBI that breaks the rules to stop something from happening is actually undermining what you stand for as a nation. How do you find needles in haystacks? And how do you find pieces of hay that will become needles in haystacks? You have to be careful what you ask for. I'm privileged this episode to have as our guest an assistant director at FBI headquarters. Don't be fooled by that word assistant in anyone's title because it means when you've got that title that you're actually the head honcho. You've got a whole program globally that you're responsible for. And in this case, we'll be talking to the assistant director, the head of the intelligence division at FBI. Assistant Director Ryan Young is joining us. Ryan, thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. This is a, this is an honor. So I really appreciate the time. Uh, the feelings mutual, and um, I know having served with that title, not in your division, but in the counterintelligence division, and we're going to get into that distinction in a minute. I know how incredibly busy uh, your schedule is, uh, including you know being scheduled down to like the the fifteen minute mark. Uh, so I am grateful that we could do this, Ryan. I always start by allowing our guests to share their journey into the FBI, where you came from, what you were doing before the Bureau, and importantly, your assignments in the Bureau. Run, run us through where you've been and where you are now. No, that's great. So I was born in Portland, Oregon. Parents were both teachers. I uh, had two brothers. My father was the PE teacher, the football coach. I grew up in kind of the same district wasn't really sure. My mom always used to kind of ask, uh, you know, wanted me to be an engineer or an architect. And in the summer before I started high school, my we had an aunt that had, had actually kind of grown up with us and lived in the house. And she lived out here in, in Lorton, Virginia. And my second brother, she'd always wanted to host us. And she, uh, she invited us out. We were out here for three weeks and she spent the time taking us around Washington, D.C. We went to the Capitol, went to the White House. And on one day, we went to the FBI headquarters for a, a tour. I walked through that place. And as they talked about what the special agent was and what the special agent did, and, and I always kind of followed the lore from the movies. And I decided that was what I wanted to be. I spent the next 15 years of my life doing everything I could to make sure I was competitive uh, when it came time. I went to college in, down in Western Oregon uh, State University. 
uh, in a criminal justice program. As I was getting ready to graduate, I ended up talking to actually one of the FBI recruiters, and they said, you know, we really don't hire agents, you know, right out of college. We're looking for more experience. And how do you, you know, I was thinking anything I had to do to get in. And uh, one of the things that they led me to is they said, well, you know, 40% of the people we hire are prior law enforcement and, and prior military. And I had inquired about ROTC and I went into ROTC with the Air Force at Oregon State University and got commissioned. I did my first uh, three years. That was actually after grad school. I did three years in North Dakota actually doing the security for the uh, nuclear sites up there. I was also a convoy commander for a little bit, moving the different weapons uh, from place to place. I went from there to a number of months after the Kobar Towers uh, bombing in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. I went over uh, to that location to help stand up what was then Prince Sultan Air Base and uh, had almost 200 people with me, did the security for also the not only the personnel, but uh, the uh, airplanes and the weapon systems. I went from there. I transferred to, got an assignment at, to Patrick Air Force Base in Cocoa Beach, Florida. You know, it kind of covered Cape Canaveral. At that point, uh, my predecessor in, in that assignment and the predecessor that I'd worked for in Saudi Arabia had left to the FBI, and they had put me in contact with an individual that was at an RA. And as I spent time with him, I, I told him my interest, and I got in the application process. I processed out of uh, the Tampa field office, got caught up in a little bit of a hiring freeze, but that didn't hold me off. And uh, I left for Quantico um, February 24th, 2001. Mm. And it was the day, I was going to say, right the, the day before when uh, Robert Hansen had got arrested. So it was on the news as I was heading up to Quantico. Wow. What a, what a, uh, what a news item on the day that you're headed into the FBI Academy to, to hear that a, an FBI veteran had been arrested for espionage for the Russians. He had been, you know, I talk about this in my book, but he had been my unit chief for a short time when I was a new supervisor in the counterintelligence division. I, uh, I'm also struck by the fact that you, your Air Force career took you from North Dakota to Cocoa Beach, Florida. That's, uh, that's a bit of a stark contrast yes. there. Tell us, uh, once, once you're in the Bureau and through the Academy, uh, what were your assignments like? So I, uh, I put in, I kind of ranked the different places that I wanted to be, I think kind of like we all do. I got my 21st choice, which ended up being Miami, and it, it actually, and it wasn't, the only reason it was probably there is just I just didn't know much about it. I couldn't have asked for a better office when I went down there. I was assigned to the Cuban counterintelligence squad right out the gate. Uh, they had a lot of senior, you know, agents that were on that squad, a very, very highly respected supervisor at the time, and they were coming off of a very, very big case, a national case, and you know, the, the big Cuban shoot down Cuban five spy case. And I felt, you know, quite the privilege because I was able to spend a lot of time with folks that, you know, had really kind of built out their legend. And, and it was such a, a great time to learn a lot. And which was interesting within a few months of getting there, uh, September 11th happened. And, you know, when we spoke before, you know, you were an ASAC at the time in Miami and I was a brand new agent. And 
what a critical role the Miami office played after 9-11 is, you know, one of the first calls that came in from America actually said, hey, we got a number of folks that were on these airlines that bought one-way tickets, and they are all coming back to Florida addresses. And we spent, I think, like all of us there, there was no going home. You know, we just worked, and we were back at first light, and we just did that. There was no weekends for a mm. long time, and we didn't. And we didn't. And I was going to say, as I speak for everybody, I don't think we wanted to be any other place but then working at the time. And so it really, you know, I know it was transformational by the Bureau, but, you know, we were chasing a lot of, you know, what we saw ghosts at the time. But, you know, not only that, but then having the anthrax case that was down at the time. And really, Miami was a, a, an epicenter for a lot of that activity. And so it was such a great learning experience. I, I subsequently went to Gitmo, I think. You know, as they stood up, they started taking some of the prisoners off the battlefield. I was assigned down there to be uh, admin case agent for a while, and uh, that was quite the experience as well, working with partners, working with the, you know, first time really being embedded with the uh, intel community and, you know, the intelligence that was coming out of there and then how that was shared back with people all the way over on the battlefield. But, you know, you know, our components in the IC and FBI that were additionally making cases. Now, for those of our listeners who are starting to get used to our use of acronyms and abbreviations, GITMO, of course, is Guantanamo Bay, U.S. Naval Base in Cuba, and of course, the site of um, detention center for hostile combatants. And some of you may be hearing for the first time that the FBI had a presence there. And it's it was all about, you know, getting the intelligence as quickly as possible back home to protect the homeland with no gap in between whoever got the intel and who was acting on it. And Miami, for a period of time, because of its proximity to Guantanamo Bay, uh, oversaw that operation down there. And, and I, I had made a trip down there, but but Ryan was actually assigned there for a period of time. Your career already early on, I can tell, is shaping up um, to prepare you well for the FBI's intelligence community role. Uh, little did you know when you first touched the ground in Miami and went to a counter intel squad that that, that whole area of the FBI would perhaps uh, be in your future. Yes. Oh, uh, exciting. Definitely exciting times to be there as a young agent. I ended up working a lot of the Cuban espionage matters. You know, the squad at the time had its hands in a lot of the significant cases. You know, the Anna Belen Montez, some of these, uh, you know, the, the spy that was at the DIA. And we had a lot of great what we'd call defector sources down there that per, that were such a value to uh, not only the FBI, but the IC community. I subsequently ended up being the uh, squad supervisor for a, for a time. So I ended up for about five years. And, and we had not only at that point Cuba, but we had Venezuela uh, as well. And there was a consulate down there at time. And you know, I had, you know, still had a, a, a good breakdown. I had a good number of experienced agents, but had a, a number of very, very talented younger agents that kind of came in and and made some significant cases during that period. And it was it was probably, you know, up until some of probably my latest positions, probably my favorite in the FBI being that frontline supervisor with a squad. 
After about five years, some of the, the SAC at the time that was down there was a Mike Steinbach, and he talked to me about going to headquarters and, you know, what are you going to do, you know, from here? And I, I kind of wanted to go back to counterterrorism. It was really, you know, kind of a passion at the time. And he said, I can always get you there. And I ended up going up, uh, worked for the resource planning office, ran the policy shop for 18 months. And, you know, it was definitely a, a learning experience. I, I take away that, you know, I was not always the best part of everybody's day uh, with policy because, you know, policy is never fun. I mean, there's nobody, policies yeah, for a reason. Nobody, nobody ever throws a policy party. Yes, no. But, you know, you learned collaboration. You made, I made a lot of connections. I learned, you know, why the policy is important and that compliance. You know, how do we ensure that the Bureau is not exposed to risk? And, and, and you know, those are some of the challenges, you know, when policies aren't followed that kind of leads us to actually some of the situations we've been in in the last couple of years. So, what actually happened, and Mike Steinbach actually true to his word, as I was getting ready to 18 months, he said, hey, I might have something for you. Um, I'll call you in a few days. And at the time, he said, hey, can you come over here, be the assistant section chief? We have this Syrian foreign fighter task force. And this was in 2014, May 2014. And it was absolutely a heightened time period as we had a number of U.S. persons that were traveling to Syria to fight after the Arab Spring. As the problem continued to grow and we were trying to form this section, you know, it ended up being uh, we had to drop the foreign fighter and it became the Syrian task force. But as ISIL or the Islamic uh, State of Iraq uh, and the Levant moved over into Iraq we ended up having to name it the Syria-Iraq Task Force. And over the next 15 months with uh, another acting section chief, we ran uh, a 72-person interagency task force, and we were vital in, I would say, probably the most heightened terrorist time since 9-11. Uh, significant time with that, what was happening in that region what they called the, the caliphate. So Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi that ended up calling that, you know, that he was the leader of ISIL and uh, he was going to be the new caliph. And the draw that that happened to the world. And at the time, you had over 100 countries having foreign fighters travel to that region. But even what became even more disrupting is as we started disrupting that travel, they kind of changed the game. And they said, you know, conduct attacks wherever you are. You don't have to get approval and just say it's for us. And it was a game changer for us in that environment and how they were able to kind of incite and get, you know, inspire folks to want to, you know, conduct attacks. And the attacks were from knives to guns to cars and vehicles. It took intense collaboration and intense integration with the whole uh, U.S. government. Indeed. After your CTD, your counterterrorism division experience, what was the next step for you? I went from there to ASAC Dallas. I had the, uh, that's where I, I had the first time being the Intel program manager for the Dallas office. I also had the admin portion of it. And Dallas was a great office. I had definitely great folks that I worked with. And it was a, a phenomenal team of ASACs, the colleagues that were there at the time that have went on to be SACs uh, in other positions. But 
really learned a lot at that time and liked that, like the office after I was drawn back that with uh, some of the people that I had worked to with in CTD. And I came back as a section chief, uh, was originally going to be in the human operations section, but they were putting together a strategic technology section, you know, a lot of the Intel technology that was used by the users. And so I came up to establish that section was a great learning experience, kind of took me a little bit out of my comfort zone and, and wheelhouse. But, you know, as always, the ingenuity of the people you work with and the initiative and being able to have that reach and bring out what folks in the field and what the folks at headquarters need to be more effective and efficient at their jobs, to be able to get those kind of tools and put them in place. You mentioned getting out of your comfort zone. And I think so many of us, as we moved up the ranks, can point to times in our career where we just were way out of the comfort zone and it became it became really about leadership skills and people skills and relying on experts on your staff rather than thinking that you're the smartest person in the room and that's so crucial to a leadership journey. Let's take a second to talk about something spooky. It's called Shudder and it's new From AMC Networks, summer is over. There's a chill in the air. Spooky season has arrived. It's scary movie time. There's no better place for horror than Shudder, which has kicked off its annual 61 Days of Halloween, a two-month supersized celebration full of new movies and series, like a new season of Creepshow, and VHS 94, a brand new installment in the acclaimed found footage anthology franchise. And that's just the start of Shudder's unbeatable Halloween lineup. There are new specials from Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs, a new season of the Boulay Brothers' Dragula, their new docuseries Behind the Monsters on the origins and pop culture dominance of your favorite modern movie monsters and so much more. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. It's been called the Netflix for horror. There are new supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every week. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. You can stream on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google, Chromecast, Roku, and Android devices. I found Shudder to be horrifying in its variety of quality thrillers. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Vicious Fun, The Mortuary Collection, and PG Psycho Gorman, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit creep show TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code FRANK. That's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, promo code FRANK. Now, let's get back to our episode.
What happened next? Get us up to speed where you are now. I went from there. I headed out to Los Angeles as the special agent in charge for counterterrorism. And in that, I had all international terrorism, domestic terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. I had all the critical incident programs from SWAT to crisis negotiation to special events to the evidence response team. I also had extraterritorial responsibility from what we like to say the Pakistan-India border to uh, Hollywood. So we used to call it from Bollywood to Hollywood. Uh, and we had you know, folks that were embedded with in the Philippines. We had folks in Jakarta, as well as uh, Dhaka in Bangladesh. And it was all about that CT fight. Indeed. Indeed. And at some point, the call comes for you to maybe head back to headquarters? Yes, I, uh, I got the call uh, in, you know, from the director in, in December 2019, and I came back to be the assistant director and the director of intelligence. It was an interesting time to come back. You know, I got here in February, and within a month, you know, we rolled right into the pandemic, which actually really was a, a game changer for how we had to do business. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure indeed, and other guests have shared that with us and the impact of that. So you're, as with many senior leaders, your career really prepared you, I think, for where you are now. And and in the sense that particularly as the head of intelligence, you had real life field experience. So you can see what useful intelligence is to the field and what maybe is not useful intelligence for the field. But let's, let's dig into this whole topic of intelligence. A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are sitting there going, so now, wait a minute, uh, this guy's the head of intelligence. What, what is that? And, you know, They know the FBI is part of the U.S. intelligence community. They've heard that before, but they may not truly understand why that is. So tell us about what intelligence is and how it differs from the FBI's counterintelligence mission. And again, Many of our listeners are thinking, wait a minute, I thought the CIA collected intelligence. So help us out uh, from uh, kind of Intel 101 for us. So Intel 101, intelligence is just, it's information we use to make decisions. The better the intelligence, the better the decisions. And in situations where it becomes highly critical to have the best intelligence, you need those well-placed sources. And so when you look at the intelligence community, it's 17 components plus the director of national intelligence. And we all have different authorities and capabilities that we bring to the table on how we get intelligence. And what we like to call it, you know, it's the ints, you know, that is the human. So that's your human intelligence, your signals intelligence, your MASINT, which is your measures and signature intelligence, you know, how you detect radar or movement on the ground that would detect some kind of launch. Uh, You also have your OSINT, which is your open source intelligence, or else your geo, your geospatial intelligence. Now, some are more specialized across the uh, intelligence community, better tools, better access. But the FBI, we have always been intelligence collectors. You know, and we've had great successes. If you look back to the Cold War when we were going against Russia, you know, the FBI had some of the most valuable recruits across the uh, intelligence community. And that made, helped us make significant positions, helped us posture for success because we knew what the capability of that foreign government was. You can also look back into New York and, and the success with the organized crime, you know, 
being able to build that out that network, understand their capabilities and how the shots were called. You know, when you look back at John Gotti, it was intelligence that told them where to put that bug that would pick up, you know, when he was making some of those key decisions. So there's intelligence is that's the one one of it. When you kind of look at that, the FBI's always done it, but we weren't, it wasn't really until 9-11 that we had to really professionalize. Director Ray kind of calls us before he said, you know, when he was there, you know, we were a little bit of the redheaded stepchild of the IC to more of the Cinderella intelligence uh, purists. I think one of the significant events, and I think after 9-11 and such the game changer that was, was, you know, Director Mueller talked about when he went down with Attorney General Ashcroft and they were sitting with then President Bush and he was laying out how this happened. And George Bush said to him, he said, you know, Bob, I don't want you to tell me how it happened. I want you to make sure it never happens again. To understand that, you know, that change is you had to get better intelligence. We had to connect the dots better. We had to share intelligence better. We had to be much better connected across the IC. We needed to bring in foreign partners. And when you look at that, the better we are integrated, the better we leverage our capabilities and authorities, the more effective we are for the American people. You know, there was uh, at that time a struggle to, you know, one of the plans was to break up the uh, FBI, you know, break up the FBI into, you know, kind of that MI5 British model was, you know, just pure domestic intelligence. And then you would use, you know, the law enforcement when you needed. And, you know, Director Mueller definitely fought through that. And his idea is, you know, I have that law enforcement action that we can use and having that capability makes us stronger. We just got to get better at intelligence. And really, that was the change. Now, we had some fantastic analysts at headquarters that were great at threats. We just didn't have them where it was that strategic perspective where you were taking what was happening in the field offices, where you would get that building out what was happening in those AORs and then that strategic perspective back here that was understanding that threat as well as coordinating with the IC to kind of feather in that capability so we were better with the intelligence. Yeah, you're absolutely right to to speak to 9-11 as kind of the pivotal moment and transformation of the FBI from an agency that was really good, maybe the best at telling you what had happened after it happened, the two an agency, as you said, that that needed to prevent the bad thing from happening. And that meant gathering all the possible intelligence that that was out there. Help us understand, though, the distinction between the intelligence mission of the FBI and the counterintelligence mission. The FBI, just like every other of those 17 members of, of the IC, we have what we put together is requirements. We have intelligence needs to understand our adversaries. Uh, we have what we would say, and it, it's most consequential is what we'd call our, our threat countries or, you know, our foreign terrorist organizations based upon what we call the FBI priorities. Now, when it comes to intelligence, we're looking, I say we're building intelligence against cartels, you know, in cyber, you're looking at not only the actors, but then the threat countries. Counterterrorism, you're looking at the foreign terrorist organizations, your Al-Qaeda's, ISIL, ISIS, Counterintelligence, you know, it's, you know, you're looking at the, the big threat countries or your, 
you know, your China, your Russia, your Iraq, your North Korea. These are the big, what we believe is the threats to our national security or our allies. And what we need when it comes back to that intelligence 101 is information. The better you can get intelligence, the better you are postured. Now, there are, just like those countries, they have, like we have collectors, CIA and some of the other clandestine services within the U.S. government. The, that's where you hear the Russian KGB or back in the day, the East Germany, the Stasi, Cuba, the Directorate of Intelligence, China, the MSS or the PLA. They are here to steal secrets. They are here to penetrate the government. They are here to take what we call uh, the crown jewels because if they can obtain our secrets, they have better success against us. If they can steal how we want to make a missile or what our aircraft military capability is, they don't have to invest in that research and development. They are already there. Also, if they have that intelligence, they understand it. if there was some kind of conflict, how they would probably fare or how we would do that conflict, which then puts us at a position of disadvantage. So, you know, when we're out collecting intelligence, we collect that intelligence here. What we have to do is with their collectors here, you know, number one thing we can do is recruit them. And so a recruitment in place, or if not, as you identify them, feed them misinformation through sources, you know, double agents. And so when you look at counterintelligence, we're looking to identify those actors, disrupt it, make them incur cost, feed them disinformation. So there are, you know, one of the great examples of all time is back when the Russians were looking at uh, some of the chemical warfare, and we actually fed them the wrong formula. Yeah, that you just gave an incredible, two, well, two incredible success metrics in, in the world of counterintelligence, recruiting somebody and having them remain in place inside their government working for us. And then, of course, this disinformation that can literally change the direction of a war if it's done correctly. So I, I always like to tell people, look, counterintelligence, you're, you're catching spies. You're, you're, yep. you're detecting, you're deterring, you're defeating the foreign adversary who's trying to spy on you. Intelligence is, and you know, just as you said, it's news you can use. You are collecting information for the sake of, of, of strategic or tactical collection of information that someone in the intelligence community can use. Now that gets me to, I can already hear the wheels turning in some of our listeners' minds about, okay, now wait a minute. So there's this intelligence mission, this collection of information. Is that mean the FBI is collecting that from on U.S. citizens? That's got to have some rules that go with it. And I know I'm asking a rhetorical question, Ryan, because I know there are lots and lots of rules. So tell us about how the FBI goes about collecting intel domestically and even abroad and stays within the rules and laws so that civil liberties are preserved, spying on Americans isn't happening. What governs um, how you do what you do? I was, was going to say, uh, yes, there, there is absolutely so many rules, laws, policies, you know, different procedures. And, and really where you, you, you really cut it really nice, there is such a higher bar for U.S. citizens, you know, that what we can do for against non-U.S. persons overseas, the, the ability to collect intelligence is a much easier bar. But when it comes to U.S. citizens, yes, it starts with the attorney general guidelines. 
you know, and, and those are comprised of, you know, not only laws, but, you know, really the framework of the Constitution, because we are here to protect our citizens, and we are here to protect our citizens' rights. And with that comes free speech, freedom of the press. It comes with freedom of the religion, and it's so significant to what we do and, and really our, our own ethics but from the attorney general guidelines, we have what we call the Diog, and that's you know kind of the Bible. It's the Domestic Investigations Operation Guide. With that, that gives you pretty much the basis of what you would do to do an assessment. And we really start with the least intrusive methods to what you would get, you know, the most intrusive methods. And with those are always higher approvals. So there's no agent or there's no IA that's out there just doing it on its own. They have to have that authorized purpose. That purpose is then, you know, approved by a supervisor. Based upon some of those collections, some of them then requires, you know, a legal review. And it's not where it's just done once. It's done quarterly, annually, uh, to make sure that we are following within the scope of what's required. But that being said, intelligence is absolutely so vital and and we don't have infinite resources nobody does it's it's finite resources so how do we identify threats faster we don't have time to vacuum the internet nor even if we had that authority it's utilizing you know what people say and send us getting the tips getting our sources pointing us to what those threats are the better as we go back the better place the source, the better the intel, and that's really what is vital. But and going back, there's different levels of approval that all that goes all the way up to the attorney general for certain things that we do, and then there's penalties. There's penalties. What happened to the FBI when we don't follow down to the agent, and like I said, all the way to the organization, and you know that you know not only oversight internally. But we have external oversight, not only in Congress, but with DOJ and the Office of the Inspector General. So if they think that there is something, and sometimes that's, you know, even if we follow our policies, maybe our policies weren't as effective as they needed and they needed to be more protective. And so we will look to then change them and make sure that we better hit the mark of what our true nature and purpose is. Yeah, the, the layers of regulation and oversight really do help mitigate against abuses and exploitations. It's not that they never happen, but uh, certainly the, there's lots in place, and certainly the congressional oversight and DOJ uh, oversight is a large part of that. Perhaps the most high-profile discussion of the FBI's, and in fact, really all of federal law enforcement's intelligence capabilities and mission, the most high-profile discussion of that has come uh, about since January 6th and the, the, the security breach at the Capitol, the violence at the Capitol, and a discussion around how this doesn't happen again. Now, I know you can't get into details, investigative or operational, but in the context that we've just been talking about, rules, regulations, what you can and can't do, open source collection, tell us how that impacts the ability to be preventive and to, to see what you think needs to be seen and where the line is. I know, I know the director, Christopher Ray, has testified numerous times on the Hill about not looking at ideology, not looking at curtailing free speech or thought, but rather a focus on violence. How does that play out 
amongst your intelligence collectors and and how do how do you how do you figure that out and and not miss something no it's a it's a challenge and and you know uh you know one of the things you know that was said before is how do you find needles in haystacks and how do you find pieces of hay down the road that will become needles in haystacks and so listen years ago when i was a brand new agent you were an asac we used to put together an ops plan and, and one part of the conversation was, do they have a computer? And uh, if they had a computer, then we had to have a specialized team. Come. Well, listen, everybody has computers now. Everybody's on the internet. Everybody's on many, many media platforms. And on these platforms, there's, you know, as we said, free speech. It's really where that, and it goes back ideology. People can have, you know, ideologies that, you and I would be bothered with in our own personal lives or think different than we, we do. But really where is the director said it's, it's crossing that line into violence and threats. That's really where it goes. And there is leading up to January 6th. Yes, there was chatter. There was lots of chatter and going back to what we just said with, you know, kind of our rules and what we can do you know, we have to have an authorized purpose. Now, around an event like that, no different than, you know, some of the others over the previous year that were significant, you know, we would open what we call a type three assessment. And that type three assessment would kind of put the umbrella of, and we had to be very, very prescriptive of what we were looking at. And in that national situation, we were so sensitive on, you know, really because, you know, you're threading a needle on, free speech, ideology, being able to go march, that we had approvals from six, seven lawyers on some of these assessments to make sure that we were given the best guidance, that we were looking the, at these things the way we should have. But also going back is, is a, a very important thing. A lot of people say, well, you can hire these companies and these companies will give you all this stuff. Well, those companies that we contract with have to fall under our rules, our policies, our procedures. We can't skirt that by contracting them and say, okay, we can't break the law, but we can get these guys to break the law. Right. And right. so it really comes, and that's why we are so, we try to be very, very forward leaning about you know, our partnerships. Our partnerships are absolutely so vital to us. I think we're much more effective within the IC than I think we've ever been. But, you know, we're still bringing in our law, you know, the bigger departments that we're used to being embedded with and sharing intel with, but bringing them in and, and being able to share information faster, identifying those challenge risks, making the public aware of what's not right, where it is that line. And, you know, we, we always say that, see something, say something, but there's still a challenge. We get thousands of tips a month. Yeah. And those aren't just dismissed. Those have to be very, and some of them are threat to life. And if it is deemed a threat to life guardian, and that was procedures that were put in place after Parkland, you know, we have to have that ran to ground within 24 hours, making sure that that is shared and it is actioned appropriately. Every one of those threats that come into us that we go, it is database checks it is interviews of the person that provided that. It's going out to do an interview of the person that, you know, the allegation is against to make sure. Now, 
with that, sometimes we see that this is a lot more heightened than it should be, and we will then predicate an, an investigation. But, you know, we are also looking at, when we put that about looking through our social media tools to see what alerts we can get. And we also rely out in the field office with the folks that are doing social media exploitation to understand where those flashpoints are in their areas where there might be violence. And then it's trying to share that information as fast as to understand to disrupt that event or stop that violence before it happens or make sure people are as prepared as they need to be so those circumstances don't see don't happen like they did in where you saw in, in January 6. So yeah, I think I think you're give you're giving us Ryan a real picture of where the rubber meets the road and the monumental nature of the task of you you have in front of you and, and, and everyone in your program has, which is you can't, you know, I, I always tell members of the public who understandably, uh, including myself, were just incensed with what happened on January 6th and, and don't want to see it happen again. I always caution folks to go un- understand, be, you know, that you have to be careful what you ask for. An FBI that sees all, monitors all, is not the FBI that most Americans want or need. And an FBI that breaks the rules to stop something from happening is actually undermining what we stand for as, as a nation. But the job that, uh, that you have in front of you these days is, in fact, daunting with, with what you have to do and what you have to prevent from happening. Let's hit pause so I can talk about Raycon earbuds. I've got my own pair of Raycons, and they're great. There's a lot going on in the world, whether it's stuff you're excited about, like maybe the Cleveland Browns so far this season, or stuff you'd rather not think about, like what is or is not happening inside the D.C. Beltway. You can't always control the vibes out there, but you can always control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Whether I'm working out or just going for a walk, chances are you'll see me wearing my Raycons. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work, or work out, Raycons will be your go-to for on-the-go audio. And the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever with an improved rubber oil look and a feel that's really cool. They've got optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. These are impressive before you even start listening. You get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. There's pure mode for podcast listening, blues, and instrumentals. There's balanced mode for podcasts, for rock, for heavy rock and metal. And there's bass mode for hip-hop, EDM, and reggae. There's also an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash frank. 
That's buyraycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash Frank to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash Frank. Now let's jump back to our guest. I want to I want to talk about the folks on your team in your program across the field that are so instrumental in in getting the mission accomplished and that is not so much the gun and badge carrying special agents but the intelligence analysts who were hired in large numbers following 9/11 tell us about those professionals, what that role entails, what it looks like in a field office, and the role they play in connecting the dots. Yeah, I was going to say, it, you know, what was interesting is I started my day today driving down to Quantico, you know, a place we've all been, and I was there for an IA graduation. And when you sit there, the new agent trainees come in and watch the IAs graduate, and they are integrated through the course now. And, uh, so it's a 12-week course. The director comes down and he speaks, and it's it's just, it takes you back. You know, we all sat in those chairs. We all waited for our credentials and just to be a part of that FBI team. So definitely a fun way to start my day, to sit on the, to the stage and, and clap. And then you hear and talk to some of these people and you hear their backgrounds. These are people that are coming from fantastic universities advanced degrees, but the screening process it takes to come into the FBI, I'm, I'm always, you know, so happy that I got in when I did, because I'm thinking if I had to compete with some of the individuals that are coming in today, I don't know if I would have made it here. But, you know, really, you're looking for these skills, and it's the critical thinking, it's the analysis, it's the the writing, and the the ability to work under time constraints is so vital. And, and you, you talked about the growth, and yes, it was a growth because we had to professionalize. We had to make sure that we were going to be, you know, do our part and be a valued member of the IC. And with that, we needed to professionalize the Intel cadre. And so we are over 3,000 intelligence analysts now, and they are embedded throughout headquarters in the different operational divisions, counterterrorism, cyber, counterintelligence criminal investigative division, international operations, as well as different spots like what you would see in the lab or our operation technology division, our weapons of mass destruction directorate as well. Because there's all places that we can glean intelligence, that we can understand threats better. Now, with that, a good portion, a large portion of the Intel cadre is out in the 56 offices. And so they are when you know, there's different positions, but most of them are all embedded with the squads that are working those threats. In addition to the IAs, one of the things, our newest position that we brought on, uh, and it was as we professionalized, we needed, we understood we need to have a better tactical presence. And so we created a position that was called the Staff Operations Specialist. And we have over 1,400 of those. The majority of those are out in the field and assigned on squads. So when you get that package, when you're looking, you got the agents, you got some admin support, you got that tactical support, and then you got what the intel that's kind of giving you what we call that domain intelligence or operational intelligence of what's happening in the AOR. And then you got that piece that's back here at headquarters that's in those divisions that are pulling 
what's happening in those 56 offices, what's happening in the IC. And that's where those dots are connected. And so we can share that intelligence. And one of the things that Director Ray says that's interesting, he said, you know, a lot of the Intel services, they just write, they write what we call finished intelligence and it's for decisions. The FBI, we action our intelligence. If we find something out about a cartel or how a violent gang is, that is to go disrupt and dismantle that. If we understand how an intelligence service is getting to our secrets, uh, we have to action that. So I don't want to also want to add on, you know, one of the vital parts is, you know, we have over 800 linguists and those are so vital to our mission because a lot of these threats, they aren't in English speaking. And we need to make sure that we understand that culture because they're not saying yeah, you know, when people sometimes, well, you, you heard or you saw that message, nobody's telling you they're going to steal this or they're going to target this or this is how that fraud's working or this is who they are getting the information from. It's breaking those codes. And that comes from getting experts at that language, translating that. And then we use, you know, the intelligence analysts to connect those dots that make us understand what those threats are. You mentioned, Ryan, that intelligence analysts or IAs are scattered throughout every single field office, all of the squads. Were there were there intelligence analysts? Uh, do you have intelligence analysts overseas in the legal attache program where the FBI has a presence in, uh, in U.S. embassies and consulates abroad? And were there intelligence analysts on the ground in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan during uh, combat operations? Yes. Yes, to all those. Actually, we've we've continued to find the need to have intelligence professionals overseas in our legal attaches office because some of the, you know, a lot of our legal attaches are working with the law enforcement partners, but every time, sometimes it's very appropriate for the intel professionals to be de- dealing with the intel professionals with those other services and that exchange of information. And so, you know, we have... in this last year increased presence of 28 legal attaches that will now have GS 14 IAs in it. And that's in addition to those that were already out there, just because we've seen that return on investment of having them placed out there. But going back to your first point, Afghanistan, yes, they were embedded with IC analysts. They were with the special operators. They were with the FBI that was the same for Iraq. Uh, when I was in Guantanamo Bay, there was intelligence analysts down there taking what was coming off of those interviews and sharing that back to the folks in Afghanistan so we would know who we needed to go after, how we could build out that network, answer some of those questions that we had. We do have, you know, you talked before about the the high value interrogation group, the HIG specialists, IAs are there building out target packages on what they consider the most viable terrorist tar- targets across the world. Yeah, these these IAs, I, I, I can't tell you how much I relied on them, particularly as assistant director for counterintel when I needed answers on uh, certain countries' capabilities or or leanings or the or some real uh, specialized detail on a foreign intelligence services uh, structure or likely next move. It, it would be the IAs that I would call in. They were the career subject matter experts. It's a, it's a phenomenally critical 
role. And that, you know, that reminds me, tell us about the mission of briefing the director of the FBI every single morning. Is that an intelligence analyst who does that? Yes. No, it is. It is a process. And so we do actually two things. So, you know, we have what we do is the internal. So we put together a coordinated effort to get finished intelligence, you know, significant intelligence that's done by each one of those divisions. Sometimes, you know, leading up to an event or after an event happens to give that understanding to our leaders. And so almost all of the, what we would say, the assistant directors are part of this morning meeting, as well as the executive assistant directors, the associate deputy director, and the deputy director. The director gets a book, and that has these products we all have. And then we have an IA that actually comes in at midnight as these books are being put together. And that actually shapes how we look at the threats. It leads to discussions in the morning. It leads leads to definitely reaching out to partners, engagement with DOJ, engagement with the intel community. Sometimes that's led to, you know, when our, our leaders have to go down to the National Security Council. Additionally to that, there's also the process that's going on, which is what we call the PDB or the Presidential Daily Brief. And that starts out at the CIA because every principal across the, the IC gets briefed on the key intelligence that the president is being briefed on. Now, our briefer and an assistant goes out there. They collect the, they put together the key intelligence and then they build out other information that potentially the director or the deputy director are looking at. They get chauffeured to here at headquarters, and then that intelligence is put on iPads that the executive assistant directors up to the director have, and then they are briefed on that intelligence. That is a key driver to the day. Uh, of the day. And that is absolutely so vital. And then with that, we track, you know, they go back any questions that happen with that intelligence. And there's a whole cycle of how we close the loop. What did the president ask about this? Or what did he say? What did the vice president? What did the attorney general? Uh, what did CIA? And did they need more? And it goes back and we, we track how many principles were briefed. And if there was any other comments that we need to follow up, Really significant is all members of the IC contribute to those what we call PDB products. And, you know, there's many a week that the FBI is, you know, the lead on a PDB product or it's a joint product with the CIA or DIA. Uh, And it really tells you how professional our intelligence has come over the last 20 years that the significance, I will say one of the products that the FBI put together, and it's a product line, is what we call the HIB, which is the Homeland Intelligence Brief, and it's a PDB level product. That just came in, uh, online in 2017, and it is actually one of the favorite products across the IC because a lot of times we don't really understand. We're, this is looking, a lot of the intelligence is external, but what does it mean to the homeland? What does it mean to our national security? How are we vulnerable? What are we doing about it? And that really leads to a lot more where we said we are actioning our intelligence. So, 
Yeah, this is this is where it all has to come together. What what's the impact of something that happened continents away back here at the homeland? And yeah, I you're bringing back memories of uh, it was a big deal if something from you know your program, uh, in my case, counterintelligence, got into the president's daily briefing and then you know you're you're waiting to hear the questions that come back afterwards and sometimes i would get a call from the director still in his car saying uh, the president had the following questions about this item and that certainly drove uh, the next hour or two of my day i can assure you of and that it was, and it was such great feedback for the authors to hear how vital what what the discussion that their piece had and, we, and so we make sure to always get that feedback so the divisions know uh, because that's what drives, you know, better intelligence. That's how, you know, how it's presented yeah. or what we need. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So I always wrap, Ryan, with asking the guest to share some examples of success stories where it all came together. In your case, uh, where intelligence contributed to operational success or uh, in community success. Uh, what, what comes to mind when you think about uh, how you measure your success in real life examples? Yeah, there's so many examples. I, and I, I had an early supervisor that said, you know, when you look at every great case, there's a, there's a great source behind it. And I would say when I, you know, I kind of go back to where I was at the Syria-Iraq task force and that at that time, so when you go back and you look in counterterrorism lore, there was a guy named Anwar Alaki. He had spent some time in the U.S., in the U.S., but he was over in Yemen, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and he was really what we call the godfather of the homegrown violent extremists. He's the one that, you know, you know, put out the Inspire magazine, and it really kind of drove, uh, you know, people were able to get, see his sermons on their computer in their basement. And it really inspired, you know, what we call that lone wolf, lone actor that really was the game changer in 2014 and 15, you know, when you look at the social media platforms, Twitter became such a weapon uh, coming out of Syria with, you know, ISIL. And there was these, what we call a network of British operatives and, you know, the Janaid Husseins and Rayad Khans. And they were putting out media that was actually uh, inciting actors here. And one of the key things that we had done before that, just because the threats were so time sensitive, we had actually worked out with the the Brits that we actually put one of our analysts in MI5. Our analyst was in MI5 on MI5 systems just to make sure we could deconflict because these people were reaching out and they were they were reaching these individuals within the U.S. on Twitter but then pushing them to encrypted apps. And at the time, the, the soup du jour, the app du jour was SureSpot. And I had a great group of analysts. What we put together was this operation called Op Legion. And it looked at these key five folks and their networks into the U.S. and who they were talking to. And what they were doing was inspiring these individuals to conduct attacks. And... When you look at some of these, when you get on a live wire, what I'd call it, you know, a somebody that's looking to conduct an imminent attack, it is resource heavy. You're talking the linguist, you're talking the analysis, you're talking the surveillance that's 24-7. You're a good chance you're going to be up on a FISA and you're going to have to listen to these live. And one of the 
section chiefs at the time was a guy named Steve Reese, and he would reached out to the L&O at CENTCOM. He said, hey, let's set up a call with the director of operations at CENTCOM. And one of the things that, you know, when you look at the military DOD, you know, they're, they're fantastic partners. We look at the problems the same, but they're over there to win wars. And so they're looking at the command control and they're taking out the guys, they're targeting the big folks on the battlefield. And we had this fantastic IA that just kind of laid out how this threat from these individuals being able to inspire, push people to encrypted apps were just driving us. And we knew that we were going to miss an attack here. I mean, that was really, and when you look at CT, it's a no fail mission. If it happens, we missed it. It is, it's a problem and we all take it personally. I mean, we do not want to see that news. And anytime an attack happens, you're always thinking, did we miss? Did we know something that we missed? Did we not connect a dot? And so it was that heightened alert. And I remember after that fantastic briefing, the director of operations, which is a three-star said, we never think of it this way. We never think of it sometimes coming back. What does it mean to the homeland? But you sold me. We're going to see what we can do to, to change this. And they went and reprioritized some of their targeting. And so as we were conducting the investigations here in the, across the 56 offices, they were prioritizing those individuals over there. And one of the individuals, I will say, um, we identified it was an unknown, and a lot of these start out at unsubs, but it takes that investigation to point it to you, that analysis to lead you, and it, it ended up being an individual in Boston. That individual said he was he was pushed to that encrypted application, and he wanted to conduct an attack. We actually, they went up live, got him on Amazon buying a knife. Because they were up that morning, he said he couldn't wait any longer. He needed to go out, and he was going to do an attack. And so you look at that resources, and we had probably 50-plus of these across the U.S. at that time. And we were doing daily updates with all these offices, with these individuals, hoping we didn't miss. Because if we missed, you know, it was loss of life. And at that point, the in, in up in Boston, they pivoted. They saw him going, and what their plan was with the surveillance was once he went to the transportation, they were going to, you know, conduct an arrest because they knew he was going to be around too many people. When they called him, as he started to head down to the transit, he turned with the weapon and came at the uh, surveillance team, which they ended up shooting him at the time. And you look at, like I said, the sensitivity, you know, the coordination that took, and over that summer, those 50 individuals were disrupted here while DOD disrupted those individuals over there. And it was funny was I ended up reading an article in the New York Times, and it was funny that, you know, how accurate they captured the conversation that was presented to DOD and what happened to the FBI. But it was really a... I was going to say an impressive uh, the way they had put that article together. And it was really accurate on how the event uh, entailed. But I just thought, you know, actionable intelligence, mm, that yeah. time sensitivity, the sharing of information, not only within the IC, but with our foreign partners uh, was absolutely so vital to protecting lives. And we all probably have those stories of individuals that are walking the streets, never knowing that they were possibly a victim. Uh, but it's because of the hard work and a credit to the people that, 
you know, sign up for this. Yeah, that's a very vivid example of the FBI's intelligence mission contributing directly to countering terrorism, saving lives. Um, that's about as real as it gets and is about as stressful as it gets, which is just another day for the men and women in the FBI's intelligence program. Assistant Director Ryan Young, thanks for, for being our guest on this episode, and thank you for serving the nation. Please, uh, on behalf of all our listeners, thank the men and women of the FBI's intelligence program for what they do and for keeping us all safe. Thanks for letting me share some stories. It was a, it was a good time. Thank you. Yep. Great, great to have you. Be safe. Thanks for listening and learning about how the FBI connects the dots in a post-9-11 world. Next time, we'll get a rare glimpse inside the FBI's firearms program and talk about how FBI Academy instructors take new agents with no firearms experience and turn them into the best shoot-don't-shoot decision-makers in law enforcement, and how the FBI selects its weapons and the types of weapons currently carried by special agents. Join us next time. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 